Hello and welcome to this Nutmeg podcast, a version of the football periodical for your ears. I'm Daniel Gray and for this episode I interviewed Christopher Brookmeyer. Chris is, of course, a sublime best-selling crime novelist, but he is also a staunch fan of St Mirren FC. Chris and I talked through his supporting life, among other things. We recorded our chat at the offices of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, where we were both appearing, so thanks to them for the room lend. There is perhaps a slight echo and the odd office noise, but Chris's intelligent, funny words rise above all that. Q-tape. I was, I was actually born in Govan, near Ibrox, um, and um, I went to a Catholic school in Glasgow and everybody was a Celtic supporter and everybody and my, so all my relatives were Celtic supporters and I wasn't actually interested in football, but I knew that uh, Rangers were Celtic's rivals. So whenever, obviously, contrary we saw it, whenever I was asked to support it, I said Rangers, just out of badness. Um, and I actually got taken to the 1976 Scottish Cup final, uh, Rangers against Hearts. But I was kind of only just became, becoming interested in football. And one night, we were sitting at the dinner table, and my mum said to my dad, what are you doing tonight, Jack? And he said, I'm going to Love Street. And my ears pricked up because I knew that's where St Mirren played. And I said these words that, to this day, I'm not sure whether I'm glad I said them. You know, I said, can I come? And he said, yes. Uh, and it was a game against Dumbarton in the 76-77 season under Alex Ferguson, in which St Mirren very narrowly won the championship from uh, Clyde Bank to go to win promotion. They beat Dumbarton 3-2 that night. And I think the, the one guy I knew who was actually uh, a player who was from my hometown of Barhead, a guy called Lex Richardson, uh, it was a brilliant player, but I think he got sent off that, that night. Um, but yeah, the team did win 3-2 and uh, it stuck with me. And I, obviously it was a good season to start supporting St Mirren. That's an interesting route to come to the team, isn't it? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I suppose they were the local team. Mm. Uh, and I think... My dad had grown up uh, supporting Rangers, but then he was playing a lot on Saturdays rather than going to games, and he got increasingly disillusioned with the the sectarianism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that kind of came ahead. uh, And also, he'd he'd married a Catholic as well, so I think he was quite keen that uh, if I got interested in football, I wasn't going to be involved in the old firm. Um, So... I do wonder if it was a set-up that night, you know, the what you're up to tonight, you know, going to Love Street. Um, but the other thing I remember around about that time was um, going to those under-the-floodlights matches, you know, midweek dark nights, um, getting taken to the old stand at St Mirren, which had a great view because it was quite elevated. And so the first game was against Dumbarton, but I remember it might have been the same season or maybe subsequent seasons, um, those midweek games were often Anglo-Scottish Cup games because they were always midweek. And in those days, it was actually top-flight teams that, um, before the competition became devalued, it was the teams that hadn't qualified for Europe. So one of the first ones I remember was seeing Fulham um, with George Best and St Mirren beat them 5-3. Uh, and it was just a, an amazing night under the floodlights. That's incredible. Love at first sight at Love Street. Because <laughs> um, you won the Anglo-Scottish Cup, I was reading. Yeah, at the today. second attempt. Um, I remember being quite heartbroken when they didn't win the first time. Um Simon lost to Bristol City narrowly in the, the, the Anglo-Scottish Cup final then I think a couple of years later um, made it to the, the final again and ironically enough against Bristol City uh, and I think Simon won 5-1 in aggregate the second time um, with 
and it was shortly after that I think Tony Fitzpatrick was signed by Bristol City so he went down and played for, for them for a while when again they were a top flight team I remember seeing like um, Wolves playing against St Mern back then and um, yeah, and Bolton Wanderers so it was there was a lot of um, you know you got to see some fairly um, well remembered players uh, in those days and I actually coincidentally saw George Best's debut for Hibs because that came at St Mirren as well. Right. Uh, he scored that day, but St Mirren won two one. That's one of those competitions I'd love to see brought back. The, the Anglo Scottish Cup, tremendous. It's, it's been mooted once or twice, yeah. and I think uh, obviously it, it, well, European football became so important and so lucrative that, and, and as the years went on after St Mirren won it, the the English top flight team stopped paying attention to it. But it was in its heyday. It was it was quite a glamorous competition. Yeah. Take me back to those floodlit nights. Use your powers of description um, as a novelist of, of what it feels like when you first go up the steps and then you go back and especially seeing the floodlights down on the green. Yeah, well, do you know, I think I'd actually been taken to St Mirren, uh, to, to Love Street, first of all, not to see a game. Um, St Mirren used to put on a big firework display on bonfire night uh, and I remember being taken along to that and the... Before St Mirren got floodlight pylons, they had just kind of old-fashioned floodlights that were mounted to the top of the stand and others mounted over the cover that was on the north bank. So the fact that there was any light at all felt quite remarkable, but it was probably a, a lot dimmer than people would expect football to look like now. But when St Mirren got their floodlights, they were they, they did look literally like the ones you used to get in Subutio. <laughs> you know, the, these big corner pylons. Um, and I do remember that first time going up uh, because it was an old sort of rickety Edwardian stand. Uh, everything was wooden. Um, and it, it, nonetheless, it felt very... It felt very glamorous because I knew that the the stand was that was the seats. It's the only seating in the place. Uh, and so I do recall um, even things like the. It, it wasn't so much the the smell of of, of Bovril and the like. It was the fact that I'd been taken uh, to a, a little cafe on the corner before getting to the game. You know, and I, I would have a, a big bar of nugget or something, and <laughs> um, and and just the 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 sense of scale because you know the in those days the most of a sense of scale you'd have had has been taken to the cinema. But even that, um, the screen wasn't as big as this, you know, this massive yeah. vista that was in front of you. It just gets under your skin, doesn't it? Well, I remember also that that first game, uh, I think the Dumbarton manager was Sean Fallon, who I think might have been Celtic's goalkeeper at one point. And, um, but he was watching from the, the stand upstairs and I think I'd, my dad had told me to bring an autograph book and I got the sense that you know, there was these names to conjure were literally sitting around you. Uh, and so it, it was, there was something magical about it. I think the fact that it was a midweek under the floodlights game played a part in uh, my first really falling for the idea of it as a spectacle because it was different. If you're going there on a, a kind of dreek Saturday afternoon where it's raining and there's slate grey skies and it would just look like people playing football at the park but with some you know with with terracing around it and a couple of years later after you started going a third place in division one Ian Monroe Billy Thompson that that kind yeah. of team that must be a special team in your memory isn't yeah. it getting Billy, for a teenager Billy Stark Peter Weir um yeah that, I mean that, that it's one of those you don't really appreciate it so much uh, at the time uh, of, of how close St Mern came because I think 
uh, and with only about three or four games to go, St Mirren were actually in contention to, to win that title. Uh, and I think, ironically, they blew it by losing, I think, to Morton in the run-in. Um, but I, one of the days that I remember was that um, they were playing uh, Aberdeen, and I think there were th- two or three went down Aberdeen um, and came back and, he, and, and got a point that day, but Rangers lost at Tyne Castle, and I remember the announcer uh, who could tripping over his words uh, as, the, as the final whistle blew and people were filing out the ground, the announcer saying, uh, we've just got the word in from uh, Tyne Castle, Rangers have lost, and it's on the top of the league. And this was you know, quite late in, not that late in the season, but certainly it was, you know, it was, it was well into the winter at that point. Yeah. And and the, the weird thing was that was that wasn't even Alex Ferguson's team. That was Jim Clooney's team. Yeah. But what what did hurt was that that team then was pretty much uh, assets stripped by Fergie, and the best of those players went up to Aberdeen. And the 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 romantic in you always likes to tell yourself that it was the guts of that St Mirren team that won the league and won the the European Cup Winners' Cup. Oh, I think there's truth in it. <laughs> it, it. It seems to have been the case a lot of well, that's a lot of a smaller team that you, you've been asset stripped a lot and you've had players um, early on uh, in, in their careers thinking of Archie Gemmell and Paul Lambert and Frank McAvenny. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frank McAvenny was, yeah, that, that was, he was quite a talent and he's someone who, he must have been really young when he started because he seemed to have been at St Mirren a while before he left, you know, and, and he probably hadn't been but it just felt like he was a familiar player because you you saw him develop and you saw him score a lot of goals. Uh, and Frank McDougall, uh, who at the time St Mirren had, I think it was like the Scottish record transfer fee was paid for, ironically enough, by St Mirren for Frank McDougall. I think they paid like a hundred grand or something, what would have been crazy money at the time. But he was a phenomenal goal scorer. Um, before, and then he went to Aberdeen and continued to just rattle them in. And yeah, with guys like, like Paul Lambert uh, at 17 winning the Scottish Cup. Uh, and very raw at the time, but you could see, and Ian Ferguson in that team as well, you know, you could tell he had something quite special. Was Love Street an intimidating place for teams to come? I, I don't think it ever was. It wasn't uh, one of these stadia that felt oppressive in any ways. It was quite open. And in the 70s, uh, there was, before the, the terracing at the Love Street end was reprofiled, um, it, the, the Caledonia Street end, it was it was a, a big kind of semi-circle behind the goals with a lot of space. Mm. Uh, and that meant it didn't feel quite so so hemmed in. There wasn't a semi-circle at the other end. Although I do remember in those days you could just walk around and change ends at half-time. And I'd forgotten about that as a kid. I was sort of slightly disoriented. We changed ends at half-time and I'd forgotten that we had moved. And I was thinking, why, why is the team, you know, <laughs> heading the wrong way? Um, but it didn't feel... I don't think it ever felt like a, a claustrophobic ground. It did. I remember also that it had a much bigger pitch than people appreciate. And my all the kids that were at school with, they were all Celtic supporters, and they just assumed everything about Celtic was bigger. And when Jimmy Bowen scored what was voted the goal of the season, it was in December '83, and he scored against um, Alex Ferguson's Aberdeen shortly after they'd just won the European Super Cup. And he scored this goal where he took the ball just outside his 18-yard box, ran the length of the pitch and, and finished. And the Celtic fans were saying, ah, yeah, it was a good enough goal, but if it had been at uh, Parkhead, he'd have run out of steam. And I'd, I'd been a, I was a bit of a stats geek at the time, and I was able to tell them the pitch at Love Street was longer and wider than the pitch at Celtic Park. 
Those things matter. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember someone saying it was the third widest pitch in Britain, the pitch at Love Street. And I know that they made the dimensions identical at the new stadium, so it must be still one of the, the widest pitches. I forgot. Always, always a team for, for, um, for wide men then. Yeah, yeah. The, that, that changing ends is a real delight of football, forgotten delight of football in some ways. Although I was at Arbroath a couple of seasons ago and they were still doing it and yeah. passing the away fans, as you know. Yeah. Lovely, I used to be able to do thing. it, you know. Um, it, it was, I think, when teams were for higher up the leagues that they brought in more uh, segregation and a fence appeared halfway along the, yeah. the North Bank. But I do remember going to like uh, Broomfield at Airdrie in early eighties, and they hadn't put a fence up, and you know there was the, the Section B Airdrie fans were in there. You know? <laughs> I think Love Street. I only went once. Was one of the model grounds for me, I just love that type of ground and sadly we're losing them year on year. You must miss it a lot. I do. I mean, it's a weird thing is that I sometimes realise that I am, when I'm remembering goals that were scored or games that were that I was at, that um, when I replay the goals in my head, I'm picturing them at the wrong ground. Oh, that's incredible. You know, I, I'll still see uh, my, the view from where I am. I'm, I'm facing what is now the main stand, although it's in indistinct from any other yeah. I'm if I replay a goal in my head I'm st- seeing that old grandstand with Carter's Corner on the right hand side and the, uh, the the sort of floodlight pylon on, on the other side so it, you kind of imprint it and it is that classic uh, Victorian layout of the ground where there would be one grandstand and everything else would just be uh, op- well terraced or indeed in a lot of cases open to the elements I used to remember seeing the uh, when when the heavens opened, they would just on a Saturday afternoon uh, suddenly the North Bank would get really crowded because everyone would just have to bunch under the, the the only cover. So much character to those grounds. Yeah, and and you just had a, 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 it felt like a different atmosphere as the game developed as well. You know, over the course of an afternoon, you would also notice like if it was raining, everyone bunched up under cover. If it wasn't raining. You see more and more of the the North Bank would would thin out, and everyone would get closer and closer to the the Love Street end, waiting for the final whistle, so they could all get down the hill uh, to beat the rush. Was football for you as much about observing people around you and the places around you as what was going on on the pitch? Well, it certainly it was something you couldn't avoid. I mean, I, when I thought about going to the game, I was always excited about what I would see on the pitch, but you did become more and more aware of the characters and the uh, well, the, the behaviour and there was there was always this guy who just I always thought why do you go to the games because he just seemed to hate St Mirren he just used to stand there shouting abuse and then his son turned up you know, so he had a son who also would stand there and shout abuse at, at St Mirren more than the I mean he occasionally would lay onto the ref and, and shout at the opponents but he seemed to it's as if he felt St Mirren owed him <laughs> Something and they were never quite delivering on it. And the weird thing is, where I sit now, there's two guys, two generations of, of, of um, fans who everyone groans because they just kick off all the time shouting abuse at absolutely everybody. And they're father and son. And there's part of me thinks, are they part of a, a dynasty? You know, miserable dynasty. I do remember also uh, something you couldn't do now because when a goal gets scored, you'd start jumping around and you would end up, you know, ten yards from yeah. or twenty yards from where you started. Uh, and I, I recall there was a, a game where there was some member playing Celtic. Celtic went two nothing up quite early on. They had a very good team, and they used to take five and seven offers regularly. And we thought that's where it was going. But it was a really drunk Celtic sport, just a teenager, and he'd kind of 
wandered into the St Byrne fans and he was shouting abuse standing in front of them just in the North Bank and somebody just lobbed a pie which was sailing perfectly just hit him in the face and he was drunk and it kind of slid greasily down his face and dropped and the St Byrne got a goal back and we all jumped and danced around and when I looked down I realised I'd been jumping up and down in this pie even though it had happened you know yards and yards from where I'd it's been strange, greasy market. I always remember that game because um, St. Mirren actually were 3 2 ahead by half time and then won 4 2. And in a great source of frustration, there was no TV cameras at it. Which was remarkable. In those days, the only cameras ever came for Scott Sport and Sports Scene, they would cover one game each and they always just covered alternate, alternately. BBC would do Rangers one week, Celtic the next, STV the opposite. And so you only ever saw St Merlin if they were playing the old firm. And that was one of the few weeks they decided to go to like Aberdeen v Dundee United or something. Um, so not only did we not see the win, but um, the deciding goal with Celtic pressing was a 40-yard half volley um, by Ian Scanlon. And it's, it would have been one of the best goals ever scored at Love Street, but it was never seen on television. Oh, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> um, I love your mention of moaning people at football. I think in Fever Pitch, Nick Cormier writes about how much he observed people hated, really hated being there. <laughs> There's just something about that. Whether it's uh, getting the, the classic explanation of getting a week of industrial tension out yeah. and shouting at people. Although I'd, I, I'm never been uh, a subscriber to the idea of people getting something out of their system. I think, actually, something that's slightly unhealthy about it is I think it reinforces to people that it's, that it's acceptable to completely lose your temper in a public place. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think it, if it's easy to shout and lose your temper completely at a football match, it's probably easy to shout and lose your temper at your wife, you know, in your house yeah. with your kids, etc. So, uh, you know, that element of the behaviour was something I never found particularly amusing. Do you think you've ever been a different person at football to what you are, uh, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, when I was, certainly not just when I was younger, but certainly uh, down the years, I'm aware that I'm, I'm a lot more emotionally restrained. That said, I always feel like with football... emotionally you only get out of it what you're prepared to invest Mm -hmm. so if you haven't invested emotion you don't get the big emotional payoffs but um, the flip side of that is that I think with people invest too much of their emotion in the outcomes of football matches that leads to a great degree of unhappiness Yeah Um, Moving forward to 1987 you were what 18-19 yeah, and tell 18. me what happened in that in that glorious year. Oh yeah, um, well you can't just talk about the cup run of eighty seven. There's because the the emotional payoff uh, of that has its roots in the early eighties, and that St Mirren reached the Scottish Cup semi final three years in a row and suffered all kinds of calamitous heartbreak and injustice and. It felt like we had a really good team and and I'd, the notion of St Mirren even getting to a cup final. Felt the notion of St. Mary even getting to a cup final felt absolutely, uh, you know, like the holy grail. But at the same time, you had this notion that well, we we saw really mediocre Rangers teams being pretty much ushered into cup finals by the SFA, um, and you thought well, this is a team that deserves recognition. And that, so it was this run of three years. They lost to Aberdeen in a replay, which I was at up at Dens Park. This was a great game, but it's three two Aberdeen won. And that was the, the year Aberdeen won to qualify to go into the Cup Winners' Cup, which they won. Um, the following year, um, I think, was the year that they lost to Rangers. And they lost to Rangers in this replay. And it was the, it's the one that rankles most with St Mirren fans of a generation. That um, In the replay, St Mirren absolutely battered Rangers uh, at Hamden and uh, had 
so many stonewall penalties turned down. You just thought, what is going on here? It was as if the rate that the somebody somewhere decided we're not having to in the final because they won't bring enough fans. You know, that was certainly was the conspiracy theory. And then with like minutes to go, um, uh, I think it was Sandy Clark at this header that you know that half the Rangers fans didn't even cheer because they were they were quite far away from it. But and the Smyrn players played on, and the ref just pointed to the centre spot and said it was a goal. And the, the, I remember the Herald had a picture of it, and it wasn't even an on the line one. They, they had the picture with I think Lex Richardson with one foot on the line and his other foot about a, a foot and a half, uh, you know, clearance stopping the ball. Uh, St. Mern players went absolutely nuts, but the referee, Brian McGinley, whose name I, I still remember to this day, <laughs> gave the goal. And then the year after that, St. Mern lost 2-1 in the semis to Celtic, where they were playing quite well, and it was one each. And there was one of those goalkeepers' nightmares where a ball came in and it, the wind caught it, and it sort of like took it over Billy Thompson. So, you know, fast forward a few years, and St. Mern go in a cup run and get to the final, and... It was. It felt cathartic, but the weird thing was, and a lot of Sunderland fans would tell you this, it felt like that team didn't deserve it as much as the teams that had been knocked out in the early eighties. But yeah, the, the the sense of catharsis of being in the final, and then I remember going to the game thinking, and it's a lot to ask to win this because we were playing a Dundee United team that had beaten Barcelona home and away um, that season. They'd beaten Borussia Mönchengladbach away. And I remember saying to myself, all I'll ask is that we score a goal at a time that matters. You know, I want to celebrate a goal that's either an equaliser or taking the lead, not a consolation. I don't want to lose 1-0. Um, and it was a terrible game, absolutely shockingly awful game. And then we scored with about six minutes of injury time ago. And I remember the feeling of, you know, I've never felt this kind of outpouring of euphoria. And then when it finished, he thought, oh no, I've got six minutes of, <laughs> I don't know what to get through. Uh, but the final whistle did blow and it just felt like something quite amazing. What do you remember of the night? Not that much. I was quite emotionally exhausted. I remember actually coming out of the ground where I was there with my dad, uh, who had taken me to my first St Mern game. And I remember someone <laughs> tapping him in the shoulder and saying, hey, hey Biggie, and you're, you must have been there the last time St Mern won the Scottish Cup. My dad said, I, re- I resent that remark because it's true. Because <laughs> 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 he'd been there in 59. Um, I remember getting into Paisley, but I was never really much of one for... I was 18, I wasn't much of a drinker. And I know there was all the stories about the... The pubs were putting um, on 1959 prices, and of course the joke was in Paisley they're quite mean about somebody not drinking, and somebody saying, "Why are you not drinking? I'm waiting for happy hour." <laughs> but um, I remember just feeling exhausted. And the other thing was, I just went home quite early because I knew that um, the highlights were going to be on. Yeah, and I couldn't wait to see the highlights. Yeah. Wasn't a time when they'd be replayed again and again and you could watch them on no, yeah. YouTube? Do you know, YouTube. I was so... Uh, it meant so much to me that I remember when uh, the Sports Personality of the Year came around in December of that year. I watched every minute of that and recorded every minute of that because I knew that they always did this blink and miss it bit where they said who had won the various trophies and they did show Ian Ferguson's goal and made a, a reference to St Mern having won the Scottish Cup and it just meant something that... This year, it was my team that were being mentioned in yeah, that slot. I can relate to that entirely. Do you think <laughs> supporters of non, in Scotland's case, the non-old firm, feel mm. things more intensely because they're so rare? Oh, of course they do. I mean, I know the um, old firm fans would try and argue the point, but I would say to them, I say to Celtic fans or Rangers fans as well, how come the UEFA Cup finals of 2003 and 2008 meant so much to you. You know, that was the same thing for them. Something that comes along maybe once in a generation or maybe yeah. longer. 
you know, something where you know that your team, a whole load of the stars had to align for this moment to happen. So anything that happens every year or could happen every year, you're not going to have a huge emotional response to it. And it's not just that it means a lot to your team, it's that you understand what it means to other teams. So I've noticed in... um, since 2012, um, when Rangers went bust, there's been this complete golden era in terms of, uh, for years it felt like nobody outside the old firm ever won a trophy. And then, whether it was St Mirren, Kilmarnock, Dundee United, St Johnson, Ross County, ICT, you know, all these teams were winning trophies. And not only was that exciting, but we all knew what it felt like for each other's teams. You know, if you went on the likes of pieandbovril.com, there was a real sense of, fans being genuinely happy for each other, you know, rather than just jealous and resentful, which was often the case among fans on Pie and Bovro. It unleashed a period of democracy at last. It, it did feel like that, yeah, yeah. and uh, which has kind of come to a, a close with Brendan Rodgers, unfortunately. Yeah, and back in the, after the 87 win, was the the bus parade through Paisley and all of that type of thing, or was it yeah. more, more low-key? Um, no, there was that, but I wasn't at it. Um, I, I don't know. I must have had some sort of family thing I had to be at, but um, uh, it, there was the whole parade and all of that. And I've been to some of those since when they won the title in two thousand and six. There was a parade, and then of course two thousand and thirteen, which weirdly enough, two thousand and thirteen in a certain way, the League Cup that meant more to me. Um, in the same way as they say about you know the player, the older players say that the the cup finals mean more when you're older because when you're young you think it'll always be cup finals. Yeah. And that I think because I'd, I'd seen Saint Mirren uh, go through some hard times and also a few years before it, I'd seen them the ignominy of losing uh, to nine men in the league cup final and thinking this was the greatest ever chance to a win the league cup and b to win it against one of the old firm, but totally bottled it. You know? Yeah. Um, so to. to for it to come around so soon, it felt like a, a writing of a great wrong. And, and actually, there's a, a strong argument that it was a far greater achievement than the 87 team because the the route to the final, um, St Mern beat Aberdeen, Celtic and Hearts in, in winning it, so, whereas they didn't have a particularly arduous journey in 87. Yeah, yeah. Have, have the team always been important for Paisley, for civic pride, especially when you lost the industries and things? It's seems to me in these towns, sometimes the football club's all that's left. I think there's a, a sense of identity that um, people can can get a sense of what there is in a town. You know, there's, there's something iconic about a town um, when it comes to a football club. Uh, there was a time when St Mirren qualified for Europe for the first time. The, the, there was some talk about officially changing the team's name to Paisley St Mirren mm-hmm. because they wanted to, there to be some awareness that on the continent that that that's where St Mirren came from if their team was going to suddenly appear in fixture lists or was going to get a wee bit wider notice. Because they knew that most people in the UK, one might assume, would know where St Mirren were from, but actually you often find that they didn't. Mm. Um, and the same way as you ask a lot of people, they wouldn't know where St Johnston are from. Yeah, it was always a thing for me as a kid in England asking my dad where St Mirren was. And yeah. Like yeah. It, it becomes impossibly romantic when you're south of the border, the, the pools. Yeah, the only downside, I would say, not a downside to that, but it's, it's worth mentioning that uh, while the, 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 the town, you might expect the town and the town's people might take a certain civic pride in, in, in having a, a club like St Mirren, you know, in, in Paisley, you're going to get a, a massive percentage of the football-going or football-interested public being old firm supporters. Yeah. Um, so they don't identify in a way that they ought to. And also, um, in terms of the 
at a, a civic level in Paisley, there was always in turn seen political squabbling uh, on the council, and many of them would be Celtic supporters or Rangers supporters, and their first loyalties were to those clubs, and they didn't exactly go out of their way to grease the wheels for St Mirren when various things came along. I remember when St Mirren were trying to get Love Street rezoned, which would allow them to sell it and clear their debt, etc., there was um, a Celtic-supporting councillor who was trying to obstruct it. Yeah, that, that, uh, it's such a problem for all... It inspired me to write a book called Stramash because I was going to all these matches, going to Coatbridge to watch Albion and seeing these buses yeah. leaving and thinking, to me, town and team are so intrinsically linked. You know, I was born on Teesside, so it's, yeah, it's, very, yeah. it's, a, it's I've a always, hard thing to deal with. I've always uh, I'd envied... Um, people from parts of England where there is far more of a sense that your team is where you're from and yeah. rather than and also that it wasn't it's where you're from rather than uh, what your sort of religious tribe mm. is as well that's why one of my favorite one of my favorite books is the far corner because yeah. it was very much about that that sense of geography which can be uh, as local as a a village next to another village, yeah. you know, that that meant a lot to me. That's uh, Harry Pearson's Far Corner, which is among the greatest football books, I think it's fair to say. It's also among the funniest books I've yeah. ever written. And it still is. It's the 92-93 <laughs> season he wrote it about, or even 90, around that time anyway, and it, it remains, just, it works. It's got this fantastic opening line where he says, when people ask me why I'm a middle, and Middlesbrough supporter, I say, because I'm a glory seeker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Any other football books come to mind uh, as as favourites of yours over the years? Uh, I'm no, not fishing here, because uh, <laughs> I've not um, I've not often read a lot about football. I think mm. I always saw football as something that I consumed in a um, in, in in other media, but or, or I consumed it for its own sake. But I didn't end up reading no, about it too often. What about the the coincidences between your own career? And football, and do you remember books coming out around the time of what St Mirren were doing, or is it two separate avenues for you? Really, I think it is. I, 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 I can usually I can break it down geographically as to where I was at various times, but I don't always think of. Um, I, I can remember. Certainly, I remember. I was the part I was writing in um, a book called A Snowball in Hell. Um, when St Mirren saved themselves from relegation in nineteen no so two thousand seven, uh, where they were two nothing down at Motherwell, uh, and Dunfermline were one nothing up away at Inverness, and um, St Mirren came back and won three two, Dunfermline lost two one, and that was an amazing afternoon as well. I just remember that buzz I had in my head all week um, whilst writing a particular part of, of a snowball in hell. It was it was difficult to be really really nasty, you know, at, at that point because I was just so un, unequivocally happy. Um, but no, I, I I don't have a always a, an an overlap. I, actually, there's one element I did have an overlap that I I wrote in uh, Attack of the Unsinkable Rubber Ducks is about the supernatural or people's belief in the paranormal, and I've got. A, character of Jack Parlaby and observing that not believing ghosts but then saying he did see a ghost and it was just an indulgent joke to talk about uh, a midfield player someone had at one point called Andy Dow he was a bit of a folk hero at Aberdeen because uh, he was he, he did quite well for them but I don't know he, it didn't he didn't quite work at St Mirren and he was he just he was we all referred to him as a ghost because he just seemed to disappear you know he was on the pitch but somehow the ball could just pass through him and <laughs> Um, so that, and I think that was I was pouring my frustration in because it was that a time when the team was absolutely 
mired in... There didn't seem to be a way out. There was so much debt. Um, they they had fired a manager because, but they but they had to keep paying the manager because of the contract. Um, they had his assistant not doing a particularly good job as caretaker. There was no money to to change anything, and it, it just felt like every game felt like wading through treacle. You know, you would just there was no sense of a team that knew what they were doing, and. I probably unfairly channeled a lot of frustration with that into Andy Dow and so made a, a gag about it in the book, which I feel quite bad for that on his behalf, except that somebody once wrote to me and saying they were on an oil rig reading the book uh, and it was one of them just collapsed laughing and showed his, his bunkmate because Andy Dow was now working on the same oil rig. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I was just going to say there's no chance I'll have known about that, but there you are. <laughs> oh, man. And um, it seems to me it's... Football and St Mirren are a core part of your self-identity, really, and, and sense of belonging. Is that is that fair to say? It's perhaps something people, all of you, many readers, don't perhaps know yeah. about you, especially if they're down south or abroad or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always... It's not something I've made a lot of secret of, although I don't talk about it as much as, as I would probably like to. My wife tries to rein me in a wee bit. Um, I don't put as many references in the books as, as I would if I was being more self-indulgent. I've always had a kind of sense that wherever I lived, I needed there to be, uh, I needed there to be some engagement with the local team. So when I lived in London, um, first couple of years I was in London, I was living in all sorts of different places, and I didn't have a great sense of stability. But I was living in Tooting for a couple of years, so I, I used to go to Plough Lane mm. because I, I missed that, and it was the first time I went there. I thought this feels familiar. You know, it's like a really, really rickety little ground um, and a team that that were somewhat, uh, shall we say, uncultured in their, the way they were going about their business. But uh, I really enjoyed the atmosphere and I felt, well, this again, this, there's a sense of a connection between where I was living and who the team were. And um, that was the team with, like, John Fashionu and it was a lot of the, kind of just post the crazy gang. It was about, maybe about 1990, 91. Right. Um, although I do remember them seeing them beat Spurs 3-1 there, complete with Gaza and Gary Lineker. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Have Wimbledon remained your English team? No, because I, I moved on. Uh, I moved to the east, well, to Barking. Uh, so I, for those two years, I went. I, I was spoiled. My wife worked as a, a doctor, and she was working a lot of weekends. So I would go to Upton Park to see West Ham and Charlton because Charlton were sharing at the time. Um, and I, so I felt kind of an affinity for both of them, but mainly I just felt an affinity with with groups of fans. Um, no, but my English team's Everton, right? Because right. Um, to come back to the Anglo-Scottish Cup in 1980, my family were down in St Anne's for the week for sort of a, a week's break in October, and St Mirren were playing Oldham in the second leg of an Anglo-Scottish Cup tie, and my dad said well, we can go to that. And I thought, wow, an away midweek Anglo-Scottish Cup tie. But then he was consulting the fixture list and said, well, we could go to that, or Everton are playing Dukla Prague in the UEFA oh. Cup. So I was like, oh yeah, I can see St Martin any time, you know. And we went to uh, Goodison. I remember being amazed at the scale because there was escalators inside the grandstand, you know, to, to take you up to this highest level. Saw this fantastic game. Um, Bob Latchford and Andy King scored for Everton. But my dad, uh, from someone who'd gone to the football matches in the days of huge crowds, we, he said, well, let's, let's slip away to beat the crowd. And the sting in the tail was um, Dukla Prague scored a late away goal. And actually, I think they won 1-0 in Prague and knocked Everton out. But that was me sold as 
um, as an Everton fan from that. It's a, a magical place to go, Goodison Park. <laughs> and were Ducal Prague wearing an away kit, I have to ask, after the great half <laughs> <laughs> They must have been. Must have been. It, was, it was indeed an away <laughs> fixture for them. Could have been what uh, inspired the song, them being a Merseyside band, after all. Do you regret them leaving Love Street? Uh, in some respects, I do, but I'm, I'm somebody who can, I, I quite, I'm a believer in new beginnings, you know, as a writer. Uh, I, I do think there's always new chapters, and certainly most of the fans that understood that it was a ground that it would have cost so much more to renovate than it would to just start somewhere else, and they were neg- so the, the pragmatism of it could not be argued with. Um, but there's a part of me who thinks, you know, in, in an ideal world, if, if there had been the money, it would have been interesting to see how a ground like that might be renovated so that you could still see vestiges of its past. But that said, St Mirren moved to new stadiums before. You know, they, they actually, I think, you know, they started off at Shortroads and Paisley and then, so Love Street wasn't where it began. So this was a, a new beginning. And um, so I, I think there's, there's something symbolic about starting somewhere else. And also, it's an excuse to mention that um, you know that Barcelona they've had multiple grounds, and that the ground before the 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 new camp, um, I can't remember its name, but uh, St. Mirren were invited to play a tournament and an exhibition match against uh, Nottingham County uh, to um, open that they had this, this, the Barcelona Cup it was called in, in I don't know if it was about nineteen twenties, but um, and St. Mirren won that, and so St. Mirren are the only Scottish team who have a little mentioned in the Barcelona Museum. That's but if a, a team as big as Barcelona can move multiple grounds, then St Martin can do Yeah, it. absolutely true. And finally, to wrap up, will you still be going in your 70s and 80s and still feeling the goosebumps when they score and still you know, taking your seat and standing to see those rare moments of glee and delight? I suspect so. I think, um, I think it might have been... I don't know if it was Nick Hornby or Stuart Cosgrove. I remember one of them saying that one of the things about football is it's one of the few things in life that means the same to you as a child as it does to you as an adult. Um, and I think as an adult, I've, I've learned not to let football mean too much to me, but it still means enough to me that I'll... You know, I, I'm someone who, if I, I'm on a train journey and the train stops next to playing fields and there's a game going on, I'm hypnotised by it. So I'll still be going as long as I can make it into the ground.